Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Team Human is an ad-free, listener-supported project made possible by teammates like Reno, Jesse Martin, Xreal, DG01, and hopefully you. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to find the others who gain access to our Discord channel, my paywalled medium posts, archives of my collected work, and conversations with luminaries like Timothy Leary and Terrence McKenna, and participation in our Team Human live salons in the kibitz room, like today's. You're on Team Human, a series of no-holds-barred conversations dedicated to unearthing what makes human beings more than code, more than capitalism, more than selfish genes. And instead of finding this human difference in evidence, we enact it together as a collective. That soft and squishy liminal spiritual space, that's Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, it's Team Human. That's right, our second conversation from the kibitz room in the Team Human Apocalypse Bunker, and you're invited. Because I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Welcome to the Kibitz Room, coming to you alive from the Team Human Apocalypse Bunker on July 23rd, 2022. This is an open conversation to which all subscribing Team Human members are invited through our Discord channel. And let's get right to it. can start this thing a little bit casually okay josh with you and me i've been listening i'm I'm fine to be totally transparent here i've been listening to um for no good reason i've been listening to better call saul and westworld post-show recap podcasts (laughs) yeah company podcasts yeah whatever they yeah they're kind of fun i mean there's like nine of them for each show and it's just like 
you know, two people just sitting around talking and all. And I'm like, God, that's, that's, it's somehow like, I don't really care what they're saying about the shows. Cause yeah, who cares? Um, <laughs> I mean, some of it, some of it's insightful, but it's not the content. It's the tone of it. That's, uh, kind of reassuring and it's interesting because now right now especially during covid and isolation which is still happening and, and that kind of conversation the structure tonality of a conversation just between two people kind of water cooler theorizing on a tv show that's reassuring and it made me think about i remember my grandmother after my um grandfather died she used to listen to this uh like am radio call-in and this is before it was um you know evil you know QAnon call-in or whatever it is that yeah kennedy and lumbound it was sure she would listen to like um this guy bernard Meltzer on on and joan hamburg these these you know uh, New York voices on the radio, like Bernard Meltzer would talk to people about their finances, you know, or, you know, Joan Hamburg would, would talk about families and, and I could see, I under, it wasn't for me cause I wasn't that generation, I guess. But at that point that was reassuring to have a, a host to help people. And I think now what's reassuring is, Oh, look, there are, there are still places where people can talk casually, you know, and it's like, depending on the level of therapy you need, you might need to go all the way, you know, to Chapo or who are those guys that just say the, the, those comedian guys who say the awful, awful things just to like, they're called like, uh, the awful, awful these things boys. Yeah. They say these totally racy, like the most anti PC things that they can imagine saying just to sort of celebrate the freedom to do it, they're kind of they're kind of dirtbag left, but they pretend to be kind of IDW to say horrible things in order to just trigger everybody. I forgot, but anyway, it's like how far do you need to go just to uh, to be chill? <laughs> I think what's interesting about the companion podcasts is that there are two really fun. Well, one is a fun level and one is a slightly more icky level. There are the organic podcasts that emerged from water cooler conversation, creating fan theories, exploring fandoms. And then there's the other side, which is that major streaming companies are now investing in commercially produced fan podcasts that are overly scripted, totally inauthentic, oh and try to God. imitate. Yes. Yeah. I yeah. hear those and it's like fake casual. And yeah. but but they're so clearly not. And then you wonder, will fake do some people like fake casual better than real casual? Because at least it's authorized casual. It's like these are the the, the you know what I mean? These are the the yeah. But it's because it's it is funny though. I know, and then you could, but it's pretty easy to tell them apart once they once they start. It's not whether they have ads or not; it's whether they just are real or not, you know. And that's the whole thing. That was why I I hesitated coming on to social media at all, even back in the days when um, when Evan first started Blogger. I was like, this isn't fair. I've I've already become a professional writer. I'm getting paid to do a column for the Guardian of London every week or every two weeks that it would seem inappropriate to like occupy the space of the people, you know? So it's tricky. And I still have misgivings. I still feel like, well, I shouldn't be doing a podcast if I can get paid to do something, but I think it's okay to do it if we're not doing it in that way. Anybody could, you know, a uh, uh, friggin' Stephen King could come and do a podcast if it's a, a real podcast, not 
uh, here's how I'm Stephen King's going to sell his books podcast presented by, you know, Viking publisher. You know, that would be the fake thing. But I guess yeah. anybody, anybody, however professional they are, has has the right to be real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the beauty of podcasting, right? The intimacy. It's it's an it's like it's like vertical video. I think it's why AOC is so popular. It's just it's right. a technology of distance. You're a fly on the wall. You're able to feel like you're listening to two casual people casually talking or two people that you really look up to engaging with one another. And I think something yeah really special about this new Q&A show that we're doing is the opportunity to do it live and then experience it later. And I think we have about 10 people here now. I think it's a pretty good time to get started if if you're feeling comfortable with a few questions. We're yeah. started. We're started. Yeah. And 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 before they come in, let me let me preface the, this this conversation with uh, my my feeling on, on waking up this morning was that the the crises that I'm experiencing and witnessing the various catastrophes they they've shifted in their structure that and, and the way I'm experiencing them that I used to experience them kind of they're all side by side like books on a bookshelf there's the climate crisis here the political crisis here the social crisis here like you know own family crises or friends health crises in that one and they no longer feel like books on a bookshelf it feels like i'm in the middle of a mandala of layered <laughs> like concentric <laughs> spheres of crisis there's like you know the cosmic crisis of the outer ring and then a climate crisis one ring in and then a national crisis a ring in from there and then the diseases and epidemics ring and then other people it's interesting but it makes the the reclamation of a space like this i mean just sort of what i'm doing in 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 my own uh, ode to viv here in terms of of establishing a set and setting and intention for this almost as a way of sitting is we're we're creating a even a taz a temporary autonomous zone of of safety and relaxation and intimacy you know we can talk about scary things but especially to talk about scary things it's almost you know like synagogue worship or something that all right here's yeah there's all this shit going on but we are still allowed to take an hour together and 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 create the innermost ring the innermost circle of this mandala is a circle of solidarity and friendship and and mutuality that we're uh, that we're forging here and it's why I, i'm feeling like this forum may may soon become kind of the central kernel of the of the team human enterprise at least as far as i'm concerned it's one thing to talk to somebody and publish it and it's another to be with people and and work through things together so thanks for being here and yeah uh josh you can uh, uh, invite people who may want to share or ask questions or do anything so there's a question that was omitted from the first live q a session and uh jim omitted yeah we just didn't get to it Oh, didn't um, get to it. Okay. It wasn't yeah, like yeah, deleted. Yeah. No, no, no. So <laughs> Jim Jewell from Seattle, Washington asks, yeah. listening to the Mika Sifri episode, and it suddenly occurred to me to ask if you are familiar with the work of Eric Liu, and specifically, you're more powerful than you think. I have taught Eric's book and both Team Human and Program or Be Programmed, and feel like they have some shared values and ethos, but different orientations. 
We talked a lot about what manifesto means and how to use your books as lenses, whereas Eric's book tended to be received more as practical instructions. I'm wondering if there is a way to bridge the gap. How do we intentionally talk about Team Human in ways that translate to audiences and listeners to actionable steps? What's interesting, uh, it's funny, I knew Eric way back when, he's a, another Gen Xer, and I believe he was like the Gen X kid in the Clinton administration, which was really like, man, how does that happen, right? He was like on the National Security Council <laughs> or one of those kind of things. And it was like a lot of us in Gen X, we kind of did, we, we bifurcated into art boys, you know, or art people and policy people, you know, so there were people who looked at how do we actively, effectively change the structures and, and alter power relationships. And, you know, and, and they would go to like, you know, political science graduate schools and stuff like that. And then there were people like me who cared about those things, but thought that the kind of the high leverage point for that would be uh, culture and narrative and media, you know, so how do different media forms create different narrative structures that maybe then give people more of a sense of their ability to participate actively in the unfolding of culture rather than, you know, like an old Greek play, either, you know, defeat it or be defeated by it, you know, these, <laughs> these more closed-ended things. So we were kind of working in parallel ways. And I think with a common socio-political agenda, you know, and they, they finally kind of reconnected around. It's like we were at the greatest point of distance, I think, during like the WTO protests, when people like me were in the streets going, we got to take this down, globalism is going to kill us all. And people like them were like, no, 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 there's still a way, you know, to use the market and government and all. And then after Obama, and we had Occupy, I felt like we all kind of came back together. And that's when it was during Occupy when I decided I've got to go get a friggin' PhD and to really understand economics. So if anything, I became more kind of Eric Liu like at that point. And when those folks started to realize, although the right wing realized it more than the left, that gosh, culture really is upstream of politics. And if we're not invested in the ways people understand the world and the mythologies they use to organize their impressions, we're, we're not going to have much, we're not going to have much say. So it's, it's, it's interesting that way. I mean, you know, the, the Bannons did better, um, did better at that than the, the Dems or the Obamas, whoever, whoever it was. But um, yeah, I do think that there's an innate aversion to wonkiness sometimes among the counterculture or specifically the, the psychedelic community. I remember uh, Timothy Leary saying, oh, don't invite any Marxists, you know, don't invite any Marxists to the party They're you know, they're no fun. Um, <laughs> and, and it can't. And, and Mika has been great for me because Mika is, I mean, Mika Sifri is in some ways as wonky as you can get, he really understands government and power and all that, but he's doing it in such a human way. 
You know, and that's again where it comes back together with Mika Sifri or with Sarah Pesson, who we had on, who talked about comportment. You know, that it's a, a, I think as we come together, we're realizing that the, the way in which we do politics and social change is as important or maybe even more than the content we're fighting for. So when uh, uh, abortion is made illegal or whatever, Roe v. Wade is overturned, and the Democrats jump to email fundraising campaigns. They just double down on the kind of blue states, Obama-era targeted email, give us money. People went, wait a minute, this is there's something else happening here. And that's where I feel like we come in again, you know, the people that can actually tell the story from the human perspective rather than uh, uh, raising money. And you look and you say, that's what the right did so successfully over the last 40 years was going on a local level and connecting people and, you know, using community and church and all these other ways of imparting their value system. I agree that these two things do have to now, you know, come together. So it's up to us in the more cultural area to become more rigorous, and it's up to those in the policy area to become more um, process-oriented and realize that just because you're right doesn't mean you're gonna, you know, you're gonna win the day. You also have to figure out how do you translate that um, that correctness into the way that you engage with uh, with all the other people. You know, it's it's tricky, and now we got to see whether we have time. You know, do we have time to do that? And does the the rise in crises, does the 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 seeming impermeability of these concentric rings of catastrophe around us, um, does that engender what we need, or does it engender more of the 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 fear and coldness and brittleness that that makes more problems? But it's big. This is where I mean, this is where I've been thinking and thinking, worrying and strategizing for the last 10 years is right in the in the crux of that question. Yeah. Yeah. I'd have Eric on here. I'd love to have Eric on here, (laughs) you know, and and really to ask him at this point, dude, do you think I'm just a fucking crazy counterculture, you know, uh, situationist? Or, or do you see, you know, but I mean, I've written enough like real, like throwing rocks at the Google bus or my dissertation. I've written enough real stuff. I'm working with Institute for the Future now on something called the Equitable Enterprise Initiative, which is really looking at how do we do, you know, how do we promote a cooperative enterprise and change tax policy and investment and retirement and really trying to translate these, uh, the ideas of the last 20 years of, of kind of post-capitalist thinking into practical, real, actionable things. What we're talking about now is starting a new MBA, you know, an actual go, a business school, a, a genuinely ethical business school. And what would that, what would that look like? How do we teach, you know, donut economics and cooperative enterprise? Yeah. So it's happening. Yeah. Well, in good hands with you, especially. Yeah. It looks like we had uh, Gibbsies to the stage. Do you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Yes. I'm from San Jose. I had a question. Earlier, you said that in the last 40 years, the Bannons have been using their, their, um, you know, the church and the local community. But I think there was narratives on the other side too. It, it was just that, uh, for example, in in you know official television or writers for movies, you know, the, there's been a lot of narrative, um, <clears throat> but mm. it's been corporatized a bit too. It's not quite as you know, counterculture is not counterculture, but it's like, for example, gay marriage would never have been accepted if there hadn't been a lot of 
pushing in the in the in the media sphere. Mm. So, uh, and I somehow think that the way the reason that Bannon's re- re- went to local and community is they've been kicked out. The only thing they could do is right wing revenge action hero movies is the only place they had mm. left in the commercial space to get their point across. So, uh, what, what do you have to say to that? Yeah, I I agree. There's um, you know, and I understand the the. There's, you know, members of the alt-right or the IDW who feel really unable to express themselves because of, you know, the kind of politically correct narrative of mainstream media, you know, and they're like, I I mean, and that's end stage, right? Where it's like, oh, I can't even, you know, write this line in a TV show because it's going to offend this one or that one. And it used to just be a joke and now it's this thing. And, you know, there's there's a, a, a lot of back and forth you could do on that. But I agree that, you know, when you do... It was funny. It was what I was trying to talk about in the mid to late 90s that kind of culminated at the DisinfoCon, where I was saying, counterculture, you've won. You won. You know, and if we've won, which I really did believe we did, we, we did. You know, Norman Lear maybe started it in the 60s or 70s, but but you're right. By the 80s and 90s, media was, you know, it, it, was, it had accepted... Uh, what we would call uh, progressive values in really every area except maybe capitalism, which, you know, which was still <laughs> about making as much money as possible in the shortest amount of time and selling the most goods to the most people. But in terms of the content, it was. And really, since Walter Cronkite criticized the Vietnam War and since Watergate really positioned newspapers sort of against uh, whatever government corruption rather than cheering it, there there has been that that bias in the in the overall media. You're, you're exactly right. You know, now you've got your ads with interracial couples and, you know, Will and Grace and all this stuff it is accepted as totally normal, which is great. And that progress, you know, the, it's said that the progress had to be made. But yeah, so we did get to this point in the 90s or early 2000s when the the what had been considered countercultural values were now mainstream overcultural values. And what I was warning about was now we're going to have to worry about the next counterculture, which will either look like, at the time I said, it'll either look like uh, Islamic extremism, uh, fundamentalist Christian extremism, or, you know, right-wing um, conservatism. And we ended up kind of getting all getting all three. And then, you know, so 2001, we get we get bombed by, uh, um, you know, people calling themselves Islamic fundamentalists and uh, American uh, 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 theocratic fundamentalism then kind of ri- is triggered to rise in response to that. And so we end up with this, you're right, with this uh, group of countercultures who don't see their values reflect not just not reflected in the overculture but they see themselves villainized in the overculture susan faludi wrote this book called stiffed and she's a, a feminist writer and she got in all this trouble and she was writing about how young white men in america she wrote this like in the 80s young white men in america are getting villainized on like sally jesse Raphael and oprah winfrey and you're gonna have hell to pay unless you um, stop talking down to them and stop villainizing them for 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 being born, and instead figure out a way to welcome and integrate them into integrates a strong word, but to welcome them into this more tolerant society. And we didn't, you know, mainstream media didn't, and this is part of where 
some of the early, the earliest uh, 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 inklings of IDW culture held some import. I mean, not where it's gone, but some import of like, well, wait a minute, we need a way to kind of initiate these these young men. We need a way, we've got to figure out what to do with young white men who for a couple of centuries have been indoctrinated to become soldiers and fight and be macho. And now we're telling them, no, you know, don't do that. You know, be nice, be nice to these people. And, and the, the mainstream media kind of wasn't, we didn't we didn't, and I think it's because we didn't fully accept the victories we had made. It's it's a, a a fault, but it's a beauty of the progressive side is that we're always looking for the next. Well, it's still not good. There's still this. There's still that. Yes, but we also have to celebrate where um, where we've gotten. You know, where where before we uh, not before, but while we uh, we we continue. It's hard. We found it so hard to figure out how do we welcome. I remember at the disinfo, I was like, you know, we've got to welcome them. We can't say no, no. You can't come. You can't come. You're bad. You know, we have to <laughs> instead. You're like, we all make it or none of us make it, and uh, and and we refused to accept that partly because we were just so mad and we we so identified as the counterculture when we weren't. We were the overculture, and we still don't realize. We are we are the overculture, which is why the 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 other side, so to speak, has such uh, uh, countercultural energy, and and we don't. Yeah, thanks so much for the question, Gibbsies. Um, I got a question from DJ. So DJ is actually Daniel, yeah, from Bloomington, Indiana. And Daniel writes, what do you think about AI design tools? It's the first time I've seen folks using tools directly that they are concerned could replace them. I'm fine with AI design tools as long as we know what we're using them for. The temptation with AI tools is to get them to do mean stuff to other human beings so that we don't have to be the ones who do it. You know, you you what whatever you tell the AI to do with its design, it's going to do and it's just going to try to please you. So if their AI design is to extract the most money or attention or horror or engagement or whatever it is out of people, then that's what you'll get. So the AI design tools will be here maybe less to replace those of us who are trying to create interesting entertainments and there for those who are trying to uh, maximize or optimize uh, an entertainment venue for cash. You know, for so it's interesting. So you get let's say you get two people writing movies. One's a person and one's an AI. And Netflix or Amazon or whatever tells the AI, all right, look at everything, look at all the data, and create the movie that the most people are going to watch the most of, you know, so that it's good for our platform. And the human being wants people to watch it, but also wants to communicate some set of values or some other thing. That person's movie will almost necessarily get less engagement than the one that was designed entirely 100% optimized for engagement. And the fact that fewer people watched it or engaged with it will then be used as evidence that the one that AI did was better, right? <laughs> but it was only better along that certain, that certain metric. So I'm more interested in... AI as, as, you know, bizarre, as almost partner, you know, or just to see 
what they think of us. You know, the way that Philip Rosedale loves playing with these, um, and his son actually, loves playing with these AI uh, painting programs. You know, the ones where you say, you know, alpaca, sunset, you know, and manifest destiny. Dolly. And it will, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it will, it will create something. Um, and it's, it's fascinating as, as a conversation, the same way that, you know, back in the, in the early days on Yahoo, you know, or even early Google, sometimes you'd put in search terms just to see what did the search engine do with that? What, what did it, you know, cause it wasn't strict Boolean search at, at at different moments in the in the history of search, that there are ways to play. So if it was a way of playing, of casting, you know, so that instead of necessarily using, you know, uh, e ching coins or tarot cards, you use AIs to cast and get back something. Um, that's interesting to me. That's where it becomes playful. If we're using AIs just to be able to churn out more predictably engaging stuff. Like you say, okay, AI, take Game of Thrones and Golden Girls and <laughs> and come up with a come up with something. You know, plus Rolling Stones. Then it's like it's 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 funny, but it's it's it to me it 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 doesn't just undermine it it it's it's totally aside from the role of art and, and culture as, as a tool for a creative weird person that's fun as a way for uh, you know studios or the entertainment industry to to uh, sidestep the need for human creators in order to optimize certain short-term market phenomena I think it's the end of uh, you know the end of everything yeah yeah, Daniel wrote and said, the play of iterative design in particular with Dolly is where I get excited. It's also been a pleasure watching non-design team members sketch ideas quickly. Oh, yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's fun. These are fun things to play with. But there's always this moment, you know, it's like when Adobe Photoshop came out, I remember it was like in the early rave era and everybody could take Adobe Photoshop and like make a cool rave flyer for a while. And then eventually we became able to kind of really see the difference between what a true designer does with these tools and what one of us just or regular people <laughs> do with these tools. And it's like, oh, right. They're better. I remember Jaron Lanier even talking about it with VR when he said that, you know, the 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 better VR gets the better human beings will get at distinguish, but distinguishing between VR and reality. And I feel like it's that, you know, the uncanny valley keeps moving. So I think there may be a period of a few years when human beings watch Netflix shows that were written by computer, and then we'll get used to, oh, remember those really mechanical, almost like vector, <laughs> vector graphics <laughs> style of, uh, of, you know, of screenplay that we used to watch? Oh, yeah. And we couldn't even tell the difference. You know, it's sort of, uh, it's sort of like that. I think we will, we will get, get better. Hopefully, we will get better at distinguishing between, you know, human and automatic, automatic things. But yeah, best of both worlds is the best of both worlds, where we actually play with these things in order to learn more about the quirky nature of humans. You know, robots and algorithms are not a threat to that. They're, if anything, they're, they're the, 
the Turing test for us as humans. Are you on automatic or are you alive and experiencing new novel creative things? You know, there's nothing better for that than a good smart robot. Yeah, that is a phenomenal answer. Okay, we are looking for our next participant to come on stage. So if you have a question, it looks like T.S. Locke is going to receive an invitation. Yes, I'm Tom. I'm from England. And uh, I'd start with a a quick thank you, actually, because I kind of shifted my whole career in a direction which, if I I trace back the dots of how I got there, it it comes back to a comment. I can't actually remember where it came from, uh, Douglas, but it was something... It was a chain that you started me off, and I think it was around the time that the, I read the Team Human book, and, and you mentioned Enspiral, which is a kind of working collective in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Remember those guys? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I followed that thread and, and ended up discovering, like, a whole big kind of movement, which struggles a little bit for a name. Some people call it the future of work movement, which is a sort of tellingly ambiguous or sort of <laughs> name that doesn't really say anything. But it's something to do with kind of like self-management and, and pushing power out, like flatter structures and, and ways to make kind of collaborative decision-making. And There's a whole kind of, there's a book, right, called um, Reinventing Organizations by this guy, Frederick Laloux, which is a kind of gateway drug to that, to that whole movement. And it, it, there's a lot of really interesting, very positive stuff happening over there and it all feels very very team human but it seems to be in a little bit of a parallel universe to the to the stuff you cover on the show and and to me it seems like the two worlds that need to collide a little bit so i just wondered if if um if you pay attention to that stuff to to that world there's this term teal organization that comes from the from the book that i mentioned um and and uh you know maybe we could get some more of that stuff on the show yeah, it's interesting. I've had a few of the uh, different Inspiral groups and Inspiral Connected groups on, um, and people who who leverage that sensibility. It's funny. The the I think it was the first or the second show I actually had on um, Astra Taylor and Tom Goki, who did the uh, debt rolling debt jubilee, which was you know a way of relieving loans by by and then taking the money and relieving more loans and all. So it was that principle. Or um, I had uh, uh, Ben Knight from Lumio, which is a, uh, one of the original... Uh, they're gone now, sadly, but they were one of the original and most famous of the Inspiral efforts. They took the uh, General Assembly uh, conversation or parliamentary style from Occupy and put it online, and it was used all over the place. And it was just hard for them to figure out a kind of a, a, a cooperative profit model that 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 worked. I had um, Pia Mancini from uh, Open Collective, I think, which is a uh, uh, an umbrella organization to give nonprofit status to any cooperative, any collective enterprise. You you sign up and then you can take money as a nonprofit, and they do all sorts of support. Uh, one that was helping with uh, like grocery deliveries, and yeah, and the the what they're doing is taking these kind of uh, uh, some of the you can call them highfalutin ideas about circular economics and holocratic organization of companies, and just going 
from the ground up, just starting. Okay, we're 12 people. We're going to do this. It's not about converting, you know, some giant company into a Mondragon cooperative. They're little, scrappy, cooperative, holocratic enterprises it, that often, I would say, often get, and this is a, a, another can of worms, but uh, often get distracted by the Dow into thinking, oh, let's do it on the Dow. And it's like, no, 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 you're all living in the same town in freaking New Zealand. It just, you can see each other's faces. You don't need... You know, you don't need a DAO to do this. I mean, DAOs can, but, but, but you know, you you may not need that if you trust the person with the Excel spreadsheet to, you know, or the ledger to organize what you're what you're doing. But yeah, I I I do think we can. Uh, it, it it has to do with I mean, sort it's so random who ends up. Uh, uh, what our shows end up being. But yeah, I mean, I just had last week people I considered more kind of top-down policy, World Bank, United Nations, and and spoke with them in the sort of the team human way. It's interesting, this theme keeps coming up, of now that we understand what is our ethos and what is our kind of modus operandi as people, how do we translate that, and do we translate that into uh, a direct action? And do we create... a, a from here, paths for people to to engage immediately in whatever it is, climate activism, economic reform, uh, equitable enterprise. And I think we have to you know, provide both, you know, that we are in, in Jewish terms, we are both the the synagogue and the Beit Midrash. In other words, we're the, the place of prayer and community and we're the school, you know, where we actually figure out um, the law and how to get along, how to get along. So... I, I think you're right that we can create more more pointers for people and talk about these sort of more living examples uh, and success stories. Yeah, I think there's some really very optimistic stuff going on on there. Some really big success stories. You know, I don't know if you've come across this uh, company, Björtsorg. It's a nursing company in Holland. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, so they, they basically started out with something like a kind of holocratic approach. And it, it was just so incredibly successful. It, it, they've basically taken over like two thirds of the entire market. They've got like a thousand nurses working for them, or 10,000 nurses working for them now. And, uh, and no managers, they've just got a few coaches and co- collaborative decision making. And so there's some really amazing sort of success stories. You know, we want to see these things where these ideas are not just kind of nicer to people but they're actually better and they don't need to kind of come cap in hand asking for a donation they just kind of kick ass in the marketplace and and replace the more kind of authoritarian mechanistic industrial structures that, that we want to get away from and they can i mean the challenge they always face is the the big corporations come in and try to regulate these smaller uh holocratic players off the landscape you know and they're they're because of the corruption, at least of corruption of American politics, the larger companies are often very successful. You know, if an Uber or a Grubhub or somebody is spending, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars on politics, it makes it really hard for the platform cooperative alternative to make any headway, or especially in something like healthcare or nursing or childcare. They they come up with, oh, well, you're going to need to get a special, you know, childcare license, which is going to cost you, you know, $300,000. And they, they're 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 good at that but but i agree and the other thing i like about the emphasis on who's actually doing stuff is it can get us out of that that dangerous space i know they just held a um 
a conference, I forgot the name of it, but a conference of a lot of the sort of the sense-making, feel-good community out in Austin. You know, the people who are talking this really top-level, like Ken Wilber-level systemic understandings of cognitive, collective, human change, blah, 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 you know, all that. And in a way, the, the, the problem is if we don't continually ground these kinds of conversations in that reality, then, you know, it, it's it, it, in the reality you're talking about, then we kind of, where do you go? You know, you end up going into this strange sort of esoteric conversations about, you know, the value of stoicism when listening to, you know, all left, blah, blah. And it's like, well, all right, uh, we're wasting time here. You know, let's, <laughs> let's get to work. So I appreciate that. And it's like, and, and the other thing is, is people like me, you know, especially, you know, playful artsy people who always looked at student government as like the boring people. We have to realize that, well, it's only boring because we haven't going, gone in and wanted to play with these folks. We thought, it, you know, they made it look boring or we decided it was boring. But at this point we are, this is, we are being called <laughs> we are being summoned. And the, the, the fact that businesses can be structured or enterprises and government in these creative, fun, participatory, squishy, wonderful human ways um, is an invitation to, to play with them, not just to, uh, to stay back and criticize them with our, with our memes and art. Great. Thanks very much. Thank you. Great. See, this is good for me too. You get it? I mean, I'm, that's why this is better for me than just just the show. I'm, I like learning. You know, yeah, you know, this is this is this is important because I could look at my own. Uh, you know, not that my own tendencies are reflective of the whole culture's tendencies, but my own tendencies are certainly reflective of my tendencies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Good to it's good to 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 get the mirror back and to realize oh look you know yeah I've been in this slightly more self indulgent space as I've been doing a certain amount of healing I guess after my two years investigating the tech bros for the for the new book and now I've got to come out and sort of pl play a little differently yeah yeah and if you'd like to play you can raise your hand and we can call you on stage we have a question that was written in on patreon <gasps> by chip from rutland vermont and chip writes did i hear correctly in the last kibitz room you believe religion is the only thing that will save us it seems antithetical to much of the team human conversations even those with people like rabbi erwin kula can you elaborate think of it this way what 
if any, difference is there between humans and really, really good robots? The only difference there would be is that human beings have faith that there's something different. <laughs> On a certain level, <laughs> it gets down to that. Um, so what what I was really, I was kind of quoting uh, Neil Postman on this rather than coming up with original thought. But what Postman said was our only defense against kind of corporatized, overwhelming uh, media and technological control. Our only defense against the technopoly is some under is some form of spirituality or religion or some amount of faith in the weirdness, the weird wonderfulness of humans or life that that you know, in, in, in the new book, I get in this argument with Richard Dawkins at this party where I'm arguing that there's something more going on here than can be explained purely with selfish genetics, that people do things sometimes or think things for reasons other than the survival of their DNA. And he was adamantly opposed that anything else is superstition. And if he's right that we are really just in service to DNA, and there is literally, quite literally nothing going on here. There is nothing going on. Your awareness, your consciousness is itself an illusion perpetrated by DNA in order to get us to run its programs. You are a machine running DNA, no different than a computer running Microsoft Word. The best and easiest, maybe not the only, but the best and easiest surefire defense against that is some kind of spiritual or religious or uh, uh, magical or humanist conviction that there is something going on here, that human beings make meaning together and that meaning is real. And it, and so it's sort of from there. Um, no, it's not saying that we need churches. You know, churches are the institutionalization of that sensibility, usually constructed in order to lock down a certain uh, a power hierarchy or to prevent, you know, uh, thought and change and, and expression. So not religions. I'm not really into the institutionalization of of this sensibility, although I think it's great to have institutions that that create that carve out a space for this i mean the commons is an institution the the quaker meeting hall is an institution so is that a religion i don't know it's something though and it's like and i do think human beings benefit from carving out a space or sensibility that insists that there's something special going on and the easiest uh, category of specialness would be kind of uh, spirituality. But art, I think, can do the same thing. Although I know machines, we were talking before, machines can create art maybe better than we can or whatever. But there's there's spaces, any space that that acknowledges and holds fast to the idea. And it's a superstitious idea that we're not just machines, that this isn't just random uh, uh, 
you know, there's a sort of emergence. That's when the, the Dawkins guys wave their hands when I say, well, how do we get conscious? Oh, that's an emergent phenomenon. Like, what's an emergent phenomenon? Oh, it's this moment when things get more complex than they were before. Like, uh, what? That to me is that, is that there's something, there's something there. So yeah, I'm, I, I find it necessary to believe that human beings and animals and life has some intentionality to it. Um, and that's a, 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 ultimately, Postman would say that's a spiritual or religious conviction, which is why it can stand in the face of, of, of the technopoly. And it looks like I can invite Polyverse to the stage. Polyverse, what is your name? Where are you from? And what is your question? Cool. Hi. Hey. <laughs> so actually, kind of to your last point in the last question, uh, I was listening to episode 103 the other day uh, with a woman, I can't remember her name, from Rutgers, uh, who works in criminal justice. But it had nothing to do with that. Uh, <laughs> you used the term trickle up. Uh, and it made me think of trickle down, which obviously worked very well, as we all know. But it made me think of a weir. And it's not at all how a weir works. A weir is like a filter that filters water down. But I started thinking, like, you're a language guy. This idea of to trickle up, I started thinking of the word evaporate. And then I started thinking, how can we think about that idea of, like, Green shoots, I guess, used to use that term a lot, but like that concept of grassroots growing up, in this case, like an analogy to water, like how can we use the permacultural lens to sort of like develop language, kind of to think about things that way? Mm. That makes any sense? <laughs> yeah, well, there's a, there's a, a, funny, as you talk, I'm thinking about like the capillary action of plants. You know, there's phloem and xylem. And the plant draws water up, you know, just <laughs> draws water up from the ground. You know, it just goes up, you know, or, you know, in science, we did chromatography or we had little capillary tubes that you'd put in, in liquid and it would, the liquid would go up the tube. And it's like, well, why is that? That seems to be defeating gravity. And how does a plant do that if it's not moving? It's like, well, the plant is kind of moving. It's sucking shit up there. And it is funny that we look at that as odd or or unnatural. I remember I've, I've commented before on how um, venture capitalists look at uh, uh, startups that that use their own profits to put back in the business and grow naturally like that. They call that bootstrapping, which is a, a term from uh, uh, Baron von Munchausen. This, it's a, a mythical character who could apparently lift himself up by his own bootstraps. That was a, it's like a joke because you can't lift yourself up. But they call it bootstrapping a business as if it's magical somehow to just grow from the bottom up in that, in that very normal way. But, but to them, it is farm because it doesn't need them. You don't need all this outside investment of, of, of fake elevators to, to bring the business up to speed. You just, it just happens by itself, you know, and there's all of these seemingly more, I don't know if passive is the right word, but, but almost passive ways for things to come up to come up naturally. I mean, even, you know, for all his problems, even Chairman Mao wrote about this in the little red book, you know, that you can't make a revolution happen. It has to, it has to come up, you know, it has to come up of its own, of its own accord. Of course, that 
his one went freaking nuts. But there are ways, you know, there are ways to talk about it. And I agree that, you know, certainly, you know, economically and institutionally and culturally, we need more more of these metaphors, but we need metaphors. The danger, and this is where I got in my Steve Bannon trouble. You know, the danger is I, I ended up using, like in Team Human, so many of these natural metaphors for how things happen that the proto-fascists saw in it the the a reflection of the way they look at the world. You know, fascists love using the language of nature and homeland and, and, and blood and soil and, you know, with like a tree and any part of the tree that's dying, we cut it off, you know, and because it's a it's a sort of weird libertarians, you know, survival of the fittest uh, evolutionary strong motherland, fatherland thing that happens that you've got to avoid that too. So like the Marxists, will tend to use history as uh, and conditions on the ground as safeguards against you know getting lost in the nature imagery. So yeah, I'm I'm there, but I want to I want us to to implement it carefully. I guess always with the check of how does this language impact the plight of the most vulnerable in the situation? How do we keep the most vulnerable in mind? And that's you know, that's always the hardest thing. It's, you know, it's even with uh, uh, COVID. It's like, how do you keep the most vulnerable in mind when you also want to go out in public and take off your mask? Permaculture is good, though, too, because it, it is that observational science and that just that observational action, you know, because you can just yeah. say like, yeah, you can, you know, you can use that language of like, yeah, the dying tree and we cut the limb off, you know, but like, why would you do that? You know what I mean? Like, there's all kinds of so it. It seems like, yeah, I like that permacultural lens. I like that yeah. term that you've used with that. Yeah, really I use it a lot, too. And it is interesting. So you go, OK, why are we raking the leaves off the lawn? It's like, oh, the leaves are actually you want to leave them there in the fall. And then they break down and they, you know, <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. What are we doing? So the permaculture thing is like it's a sort of non-interventionist understanding of of agriculture and it applies to everything else. Adam Brock, I think we had him on, wrote a book that applied permaculture to all these other uh, life systems or, or, or cultural systems. But yeah, you're, you're right. It's then looking at, it's like not how do I run a party, but how do I create the conditions in advance for the best party to happen? How do I create the conditions for nature to do what nature does? How do I assist and nurture rather than command and control? That's the whole trick. The whole trick to being human, really, because we, we've yeah. got that urge. We've got that urge to dominate. I don't want to take up more time, but I just wanted to say it's interesting because the opposite of that language, I was reading this, I'm still reading this book, it's very dense, uh, The Government Machine by John Algar, which is all about how the idea of government as machine was language used to promote machines back during the time of, it starts with like in the Prussian era with the, uh, the phrase to work like clockwork. Um, but there's also, as, as these terms are being used and developed, uh, simultaneously, there's all this language talking about, you know, the organic body is like sickly and, sickly and, and it can die and it can like, it's susceptible, whereas machines are not susceptible. And it's this really interesting, it's the same thing. It's like it's the opposite of that language, you know, like using language as machines and organics, you know, and how's, how we're dealing with that and how we've dealt with that for a long time. It's super interesting. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting. I was just, um, 
I was just on a panel a couple of weeks ago where we were talking about um, Genesis Briar P. Orridge and, and Lady J's artwork together. And someone was talking about how they used to call, you know, oh, look at this sort of, you know, blood sack or whatever it is that we walk around in in this dimension. And this, this, um, it felt to me like, like, I don't know if they meant it that way, but their work was being interpreted like a lot of people's is, oh, you know, when you're here, you're just in this bag of bones thing walking around and that's not what matters. There's this spiritual essence that matters so much more and all. And uncomfortable with degrading the the lived human biological experience in order to elevate some other spiritual one. You know, I, the body is like, it's part of it. It's really... <laughs> It's real, you know, and it's too easy. Once you let go of the body, then you let go of all the other bodies and that are that are there going through what they're going through. And it's it's real. There's hungry people. There's there's people in pain. It's like, you don't this is real. You know, you, it's really easy to talk about that body, this thing that you leave behind until you're in real bad pain then the body really reasserts itself in a way where that's all there is you know there's pain and less pain you know and when you get in those states as i'm sure most people have had at one point or another in their life um you realize no there's there's something very very real and physical and you know flesh and bone going on here too and we we ignore that or or degrade it at at you know at our peril yeah word thanks doug yeah thank you Thank you. Yeah, it's that observational thing is so real, you know, and not that we have to just sit back and not do anything, but to look at how to look at how systems work before you you intervene. There's that great story that Tyson Yunkaporta told on the podcast about how he um, had to take these kids out to the beach so they could look at doing urban design that would be less susceptible to having buildings get pulled back into the ocean. And some kid was looking out there saying, man, that's never going to work. You're pulling all the sand out of the ocean to make the buildings, creating these big holes in the sea. It's going to suck them back down there. And, uh, you know, it's those, it's that just taking a moment to look at the cycles before you try to just go in and, and stamp stamp out their logic yeah. is real. Did you see Jenny O'Dell's book, How to Do Nothing or yeah. something? It's right here. Yeah, I just finished that. Same, same thing, yeah. Yeah, no, she's great. And she blurbed my book and I was like so glad to get like, for her to look at it and, and to see, because after reading that, I'm like, all right, if I pass that kind of test, then, then, then I'm okay. She's really, she's special. She's like one of the, the, I hope she's being recognized as one of, you know, the freshest, smartest thinkers about the relationship of humans to systems and technology who's, who's around. Yeah. yeah. Other than you. <laughs> ah, no, I mean, better. She's, yeah. ne she's next generation. She's like, yeah. she's better. Yeah. She's better, but that's fine. That's fine. I want them, I want people to be better than me. You know, then when I retire, Absolutely. I won't be sad. I'll be happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm Will from Philadelphia, by the way. I never said that originally, but I've been hey. taking up too much time, so I'm going to go. <laughs> no, there's no such thing as too much time. Thank you. So thank you. And the person who Will was referring to that episode was uh, Sarah Lagason, who's super smart looking at uh, uh, prison reform. And, and uh, it was a, that was a really special episode. Josh yeah. and I often talk, often talk about her work. Yeah. yeah. She, we recorded that one live from the basement lab at Queens College. It was a really, really special conversation. All right, it looks like OT is going to be brought on. OT, what's your name? Where are you from? And what are you thinking about? Hello. 
So my name is Juan, I'm calling from San Diego. I wanted to talk about something Douglas mentioned earlier about how all the values of the counterculture have been adopted in the mainstream, except for, quote-unquote, the issue with capitalism, right? Yeah. And, I mean, I think it's, this isn't accidental, right? So, so in a way, I think one way to explain sort of the extraordinary success of the cultural progressivism the last few decades might be that you know, corporate media has an interest to sort of push in that direction as a way to distract from, you know, maybe more problematic areas of focus, right? Mm. And so it feels a little bit like we've gotten to a point of, of negative returns, at least when it comes to, say, racial equality, where, you know, at this point, I feel like race-blind progressive policies would benefit Black people a lot more than this sort of keyboard warrior, correct language type of work, right? And so my question is, how do we sort of shift that energy, right? How do we make people who argue about language as if it's the only thing that matters, sort of tone it down a little, right? And, and find ways to build bridges and to work with people who didn't go to, you know, elite colleges and don't speak in the right, with the right terms and so on, so that we can actually do something good for people as opposed to just sort of, you know badger them it's a super super duper hard question you know and i've tried to engage on it it's funny i did this one conversation with these folks it's like most of the people who write the books or the articles on this phenomenon have so much of an axe to grind that they end up sort of in that jordan peterson you know or Joe Rogan guest hostility, which does then come off as racism or transphobia or, or something else. You know, they object to it as, as an excuse to express ultimately racist or white supremacist ideology. You know, and I talk a little bit about it in, in the new book, but stopped because it's such a minefield because if you, because it doesn't, they are right. The, the, the word police are correct in their assessment of what comes along with certain language. Um, but um, it's like, which, which fire are we putting out when? And how do we do um, that wonderful education that they've gotten in the, the embedded hegemony of language? How do we do that in a way that the general public can get and can still get what without alienating them from the uh, uh, immediate crises of, you know, climate and, and economic justice? It's really, it's hard. And I look at it, it, it looked at cynically, I can say, well, look, the neoliberal side of the Democratic Party, you know, like uh, uh, the kind of the, he, the Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton side of the Democratic Party, which really doesn't question um, the fundamentals of capitalism, they were more than happy to embrace identity politics in a, I would argue, in a cynical way, you know, because identity politics is, it can be understood as a, a a branch of consumerism. You know, who are you? What are your infinity groups? That's good. You stay in your identity. Don't forge real solidarity or you're going to take down capitalism. You think of yourself individually. Go on your Twitter feed. Go on your own Instagram account and build the self rather than than the collective. And that's, you know, uh, uh, that's the, the, 
way that intersectionalism has been really abused by capitalism. And in some cases where intersectionalists have just as hackers and psychedelics people did, fall into the temptation of being acknowledged by these power structures, but but it, it ultimately it's making a deal with the devil. You know, the hackers, it was like, the, the I remember when the hackers took money and it was less about taking the money, this is in the early 90s, than it was about mommy and daddy finally recognize that we're not just uh, uh, fantasy role-playing people, you know, we are we are making something real or the psychedelics community now is falling into the trap of oh look you know the medical establishment is willing to take us on by patenting our chemicals and creating you know really corrupt you know uh, uh, extractive exploitative uh, uh, models for using psychedelics like no 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 don't shake that hand don't make that deal and I feel like s- some in the into interse- intersectional community also kind of accept that deal because it's better to be a Acknowledged than not, but to be acknowledged in ways that continue the divide and conquer uh, battle against those with kind of anti-capitalist sentiments is a problem. But it's so hard to talk about. I'm sure things I've said already in the last five minutes are in many communities cancelable things, and uh, and that's that's a problem you know we've boxed ourselves into a corner and i feel like the only way out is and i invited her to come today and she, she, she doesn't have her login um it's the kind of stuff sarah pesson talks about where it's like okay the way in which we engage with each other takes precedence over whatever it is we're engaging about what is the comportment we need in order to engage meaningfully about about these things and and that is going to be the beginning of it but but I agree with you, and and I think it's going to it's going to take. And I'm so glad finally there was a, a at least by my ears a female sounding uh, person coming to do the that question because it's going to take other than white male intellectuals talking about this to 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 soften this 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 conversation. You know, it, it can't. And that's why I've sort of steered away from it. It's not, it's not that it's not, it's not my problem. It is my problem, but it's really hard for, for it, it to come from uh, outside, whatever, outside the, the intersectional community. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's, I agree with all of that and, and that it helps to know that, that there's awareness of this more broadly. It does make me a little bit hopeless to hear that you feel like you can't wade into that at all. I guess... And I see the the fact that there's always a balance we need to strike, but I feel like we're it's pretty clear which way the balance goes right now, right? So if the most progressive candidate is derailed by, you know, despite having had a whole career of championing, you know, mm. minority rights and so on, is derailed by bullshit, honestly, and someone like you doesn't feel like they can speak up about it. It seems like it's pretty clear which way the balance goes right now, right? Uh, and so I feel like. You know, if you're, or maybe one rule of thumb would be that if you feel like you're righteous, but you're, what you say is supported by Amazon, then maybe Mm. that should be a clue that you're not righteous, right? And on the other side, maybe if you think you're saying the right thing, but then you're supported by David Duke, then maybe, you know, you're not on the right side. So, I don't know, maybe there's some, some sort of objective way to convince people that we could look at this, right? Um, but yeah, thank you. Yeah, 
Sure. I think it all comes down to, you know, the same thing that made it impossible for me to engage, say, with Bannon, who liked many of my ideas, that 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 makes it hard to engage with some people in on the progressive side is our it goes back to our theory of change. How are we going to get the results that we want? Is it going to be by shooting down every progressive who doesn't use the right language for certain kinds of things? Or is there is there another way of engendering the compassion for the marginalized? Is there another way to do that? And I think I think there are. And I mean, I, and to be fair, I have addressed it some, sometimes failingly. I mean, I had some guests on that, that I, we had to, you know, put the episode behind the paywall because it was just too, they got too aggro about all this. But there are, there are ways um, to talk about it. And I can, uh, I think there is an urgency. I wrote a piece um, when that thing happened to Bernie about the, you know, about this sort of the leftist firing squad. And I've written about it occasionally, you know, once a year, I'll kind of venture in when there's a a, a really easy example. But I, I do think we can um, also in the spirit of some of the first uh, conversations we had in this in this call about getting down to the practical. You know, that's one of the scariest parts about the practical is 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 how do we engage you know and and i think we can uh, have some more uh, have some guests and conversations that look at you know how to do this thing in particular so thanks for that yeah thank you that was a great question and this was a lot of fun thank you everyone for uh asking your questions and i know we're hoping to do this still more regularly right douglas yeah, I mean, I'm guessing for now, you know, because it's a crazy period. We're good, certainly monthly. Yeah, I think it's good to have a, a monthly Q and A episode, and and the Q and A will hopefully move. As this one is, I'm doing better. You know, I'm still because I do the main things I do are these sort of Zoom things where people ask a question and then I give some whole big long answer. And I gotta, I want to try to do that less and do more like what we just did in the last one, a little bit more back and forth of like. Because I don't have the answer. If you listen back, all I'm really doing is kind of restating these questions <laughs> in, in, in ways that maybe help expand them to collective inquiry. But um, I think the the way we get to something like answers is going to be with more of a back and forth. So I want to I want to play with that more. And I'm just gotta I just have to learn how to how to do that more interactive hosty thing rather than you know whatever dude on a hill sharing his thoughts. I think it's working really well. It's engaging, insightful dialogue, and I hope everyone here enjoyed it. And those of you who are listening to this just on the show, you should know now, look, there's this way that you can come and talk with all the others and hang out and be on Discord and play. And so for like two bucks a month, if you can muster that, please come join. Um, and if you can't, then email um, team at team human and, and uh, we can see about Josh offering uh, some kind of scholarship to the discord for people who can't, uh, can't afford it. The two bucks a month has become a really good way just to kind of filter out, you know, the, the, the people who just have no commitment whatsoever to what we're doing, it would just come in and just, bleh, you know, mess things up. But um, I'm sure we could take a few scholarship members. I know these are hard times and even two bucks a month is a, is a lot for some people, but if you got an internet connection, chances are you're already spending. So it'd be great if you can, if you can, if you can do that, but you know where to find us. And, and thanks for listening to this. Cause it's a, uh, uh, I realize it may be an indulgence, but it's also uh, we're in process here. So thanks for playing along. I hope everyone has a fantastic, healthy, safe weekend. 
Yes, you're special. We love you. Thanks for joining Team Human, coming to you live from the Kibitz Room in the Team Human Apocalypse Bunker on our Discord server. You're invited to participate live in any of these sessions by becoming a subscribing member of Team Human. Team Human is edited and engineered by Luke Robert Mason and produced by Joshua Chapdelaine, whose voice you heard along with me in the Kibitz Room today. Our opening theme is by Fugazi, and the closing theme behind me is by Mike Watt on bass. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.